Hey, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. This is episode 108. It's Peter Luscombe. Here we go. Today is Peter Luscombe. Peter is a drummer, producer, and musical director from Melbourne, Australia. From Joe Camilleri and the Black Sorrows, Vicar and Linda Ball, Stephen Cummings, amongst many others, to the house drummer and MD for long-running SBS music quiz show Rock Quiz, and of course, Peter is the longtime drummer and band member of the Paul Kelly Band. With Peter, it's all about the song first, and it's with this mindset impeccable time and feel and always great sounding drums that's kept Peter in demand for all these years. So, ladies and gentlemen, leading with your left hand, please give it up for Peter Lucky Luskovich. Um, I think we're rolling. Peter Lucky Luscombe. How's it going, man? Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Thanks, Stevie. Good to be here, mate. Mate, it's good to have you. Um, what have you been up to these last last couple of weeks? Oh, let me let me just say, you, you're down in Melbourne, so yep. uh, you guys have had it particularly tough uh, through the COVID thing, you know, heavy, heavy lockdowns. Um, in Sydney, you know, we had a, 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 a lockdown sort of, Midway through last year, but that was about about it. But you guys have um, you've copped it pretty solid down there, and um, you know what sort of toll is that is that taken on you? You know, it was uh, yeah, it was pretty hard. Um, it was hard on for, everyone had different. Everyone's got a different story how things affected them. You know, we were in a two bedroom apartment with a five year old or four year old at the time. Mm. And Kinder was closed, so you can imagine what that was like every day trying to fill a day up. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like once Kinder reopened, I didn't care, I didn't give a shit what else went on. <laughs> so great, Kinder's open. Yeah. Well, at least you didn't have to homeschool because man, we had to do that, and it was tough, man. Oh, it, it was hard. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. But I've uh, been doing, you know, like I made myself. The good thing is, like you know, knowing knowing that you've got a block of time where you're probably not going to be doing any gigs. You just sit down and you work on some stuff that you haven't done for years, like just on a practice pad. Like, All yeah. right, I'm going to work on these flame rudiments that I haven't done for yeah. years and years and just, you know. Yeah. And, you know, things that you you just – that's what you used to do when you were young in your 20s, but, you know, when you're working all the time, you, you don't really have that time set aside to do all that kind of stuff. And it was good to revisit all that kind of stuff. So Yeah, I saw something on the internet. Um, you did something for – was it for Pearl or um... – or one of the yeah, musicals. Pearl or Zildjian, yeah, Zildjian, yeah, mate. yeah. When you when you um you showed a little bit of your your lockdown rudiment, your sort of routine to keep the hands busy while you weren't working. So that that was a pretty cool yeah. Thing. It was one of the exercises I used to do in the warm up. It was a ten minute thing where I just 
put the metronome on 30 and do a paradiddle pyramid in that time and try to not flam with the downbeats. It's like a real, yeah. it's a real um, exercise in space and, you know, like really landing notes properly. It's, it's something that I teach when I teach, um, you know, people that, when I teach advanced students that have been playing a long time, that have got a, a lot of chops, and you kind of go, okay, what we've got to do now is get you to be still, <laughs> you know, when yeah. you need to be. <laughs> Stay in the moment. This is how you feel the moment, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Did um, What did you have um, in the pipeline pre-COVID? Well, we had uh, that, yeah. Sorry, that, what, that got blown out, obviously, in... Yeah, pretty much a whole year's worth of stuff. Um, it was mm. there was a, um, a rock quiz tour that was meant to be quite a reasonable sized regional tour. Then there was meant to be a Paul Kelly regional tour, uh, and out, a lot of recording, um, a bunch of you know one off sessions. It was kind of like just watching the cards tip over one by one, you know. And um, yeah. it was uh, it was one of those things where you. Um, just thought, shit, what am I going to do? And then, you know, funnily enough, when, when we knew the JobKeeper was happening, if you were qualified for it, mm. all of a sudden you went, okay, well, this is the way it's going to be this year. Cut your spending. There was nowhere to go, luckily, so you didn't spend any money. Yeah. And uh, you could yeah. you could kind of, <laughs> you, could, you found that you could live on a lot less money and actually, you know, um, it was a weird thing for a musician to get a regular paycheck, you know. Yeah, every yeah week. right. <laughs> so, <laughs> Someone that pays on time, hey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah. Can I can I just read something that you posted on Facebook today that I ended oh, up, yeah, please. Yeah, 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 that I ended up sharing. Yeah. To all the international tennis tennis players currently in hard lockdown, <laughs> quote unquote, from all <laughs> from all the entertainment industry, hospitality industry, small businesses and Mel- Melburnians who endured our recent lockdown, suck it the fuck up. <laughs> For people that don't kind of get that, um, the Australian Open is in Melbourne very, very shortly and um, tennis players are flying in from all over the world and they're, they're having to go into a, <laughs> into a luxurious uh, lockdown, mm. um, and they're complaining about it, aren't they? So, uh, <laughs> can you give Look, me I'm your sure take? Yeah. yeah, I'm sure it's it's different levels of it depending on how high you're up the scale you are as yeah. a tennis player. Yeah. But the, I think the fact that you actually get to do your craft, which most of us wish we could have done, um, and you're complaining about, you know, you kind of there's no way known you wouldn't know you were going into a different world than what you normally would. Mm. And I think a lot of these players come from uh, territories and countries where they've almost ignored the lockdowns. And yeah. so, they, you know, they've been able to just, I mean, you know, where people are just dropping like flies all around them, but they're still going on with their <laughs> life. And it's yeah. kind of like, dude, yeah. come on, man. Like, you know, this is the way we're doing it. You're lucky you're here and yep. you're lucky you get to do what you do. So just, you know, deal with it and I'm sure everything will be okay. Yeah. There and are worse I, I, things. Yeah, for sure. And I, I read um, Novak Djokovic was uh, he put in an exemption to go and do his um, his uh, or an application and to go and do his his lockdown at somebody's mansion that had a tennis court. Yeah, yeah so I could have a tennis court. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh come on, man. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, 
Oh man, it's crazy. Um, so just going back to the oh, we were talking before we hit hit record. Um, the last couple of years you've uh, played on the New Year's Eve um, concert. 2019, you were you were here in Sydney, weren't you? Yeah, I think we did uh, 17, 18, 19, yeah. Oh, yeah, right, right. And then yeah, – Three um, years in a row, yeah. Three years in a row, yeah. And then uh, this last New Year's, you guys were obviously down in Melbourne doing yeah. doing the show there. So what was – I mean, having having played those few years to a packed f- foreshore and, um, you know, everything that comes with a, a New Year's Eve spectacular – to all of a sudden, you know, being what it looked like from us, like a, you're in like a tent soundstage type sort of thing and you're playing. And, and from TV, it looked fant- like a fantastic, sounded great. Um, what was it like playing to basically no one on a New Year's Eve? It was um, it was a really – it was an interesting night because it was, um, it was the first show we'd done as a band since um, Jan 30. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the last show we did was um, with Chisel in Canberra on the 30th of January. Right. And um, so just coming back, having not played as a band for that long, was kind of a little bit like we, we did a lot of warming up. We did a lot of rehearsals. We did a, a little small uh, friends and family gig in Melbourne before it just so we you know, could play to an audience. Mm-hmm. It was a funny thing. It was like a bit of a um, – it was such a cathartic thing to be able to play with your friends and play music and play these songs. Mm-hmm. But to go out in the, you know, to the My Music Bowl, which is normally a venue where we do the gravy shows, which is 12,000 people, yeah. to no one, apart from uh, we had a, we were allowed to have some friends and family on the side seats, just right. on the side of stage up above, right. which was great because, you know, we actually had – you know, we could invite – who we wanted to, and but to um, go out there, play a song, and then, of course, because of the way the telecast was, it was crossing back and forth between Sydney and Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So every now and then you just you do three songs, and then you sit there in silence while they cross Sydney, <laughs> and you got to ma- you got to maintain the vibe. Yeah, and then you come back, and well, but it was actually, I, I look, it, it turned out to be a really great gig, and it was a great night. Um, the good thing about it was that. The TV cameras must have loved it because, like, they had all this room to move to all move, these yeah. cranes and do all these great shots they never yeah. get to do yeah. when there's people around. So that was cool, and the audio was fantastic. I listened back to it; it sounded really good. So, yeah. But it was just it was a it was actually a really I loved it. I, I, I was so happy to be playing again. You know? Yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um, now two thousand and two thousand nineteen. Uh, New Year's Eve show. Um, yeah, the the acts that stole the show for me were the Wolfgram Sisters. I I'd, ne- I'd yeah. never seen them, or heard them before, and they yeah. just like all the acts that that came on. Those those two girls absolutely just blew the rest of them away with their with their voices and vocals. Um, I know you've had a long association with with those girls too, but yeah, I I, I didn't really know who they were at the time, and. Um, yeah. I think st- straight after the performance, I got on Facebook and went, "Who are the backup singers on uh, on the New Year's Eve show?" And then found out who they were, and just yeah. they're just outstanding. Now they're good. They're, there's there's a third sister, Kelly, yeah. that lives in New York at the moment. And right. um, the first time I uh, toured with them was um, on the 2006 Countdown Spectacular, 
Um, I got them because I was them doing that show and I got them to come on board as the backing singers for that now. And ever since then, they've sort of done a lot of rock quiz things every now and then. And yeah. they're just, you know, we, 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 we kind of have most of the things that we do with when we put together a, uh, a band, uh, you know, whether I'm MDing or Ash Naylor's MDing or whoever, we always use a lot of the same people because we know course, each other yeah. well and we know that they'll do the job and it's a good bunch of people that all get on well and like a lot of the same stuff and mm. and they they do the homework and you know that they're going to, you know, serve it up on the night, which is really cool. Mm. Yeah, it's cool. Um, and then you mentioned the the making gravy shows. My wife went to the 2019 and the 2018 shows at the at the um at the domain, domain? here in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I couldn't go because I had to babysit, and because yeah. I'd be because I'd been out, you know, because I go out and, and play gigs and stuff. It kind of yeah. wasn't fair. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. So so yeah, I, I happily stayed home and and um and watched the kids and and she was a bit bummed that you know there wasn't a show. The end of last year. Yeah, you know, it was like, you know, Hopefully right up till the middle of the year, we thought there was a chance that it might happen, you know, and yeah. sooner or later it just looked like it was, it was not going to be. So, mm, yeah. And then we, yeah, we ended up having that Northern Beaches cluster just around I know, Christmas that was around day, the same so. time. Look, it was a really yeah. interesting thing because the guy that plays um, keyboards in Paul's band, Cameron Bruce, mm. he's the only non Melbourne guy in the band. He lives in Sydney, but he happened to be on the Gold Coast doing some work up there for a film that he's working on, doing music for. Mm. And we spoke and I said, dude, you probably don't want to go home. You know, (laughs) you should probably come straight down to Melbourne and hang there because you might get stuck Mm. in Sydney. And sure enough, if he had gone home, he wouldn't have got out of there. So Yeah, yeah, that's it. All right, man, well, that's enough on the COVID thing for now. Um, Yeah. let's, uh, Let's roll back early days, Peter Peter Luscombe. How it all began? Do you have a musical family? Yeah, were you uh, born and raised in Melbourne? Yeah, yeah, I was born in um, suburb of like Parkdale or Mentone, the Bayside suburbs down that way. And um, you know, um, my father played drums, and but he didn't. He wasn't like a professional. He didn't do it full time. He 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 was you know somebody that was. Um, playing when he was a teenager up until, you know, his early 20s. And, and once he started, you know, working and having kids, he, you know, the drums got put away. But that was my first drum kit was his old kit. And I started playing around nine or ten, you know, just setting them up at home and just bashing away and trying to work out how to do it. And um, so there was always music around in the house because he was a big jazz fan. So, there were, you know, he had a record collection of all that stuff. And when I was... A kid, uh, when I was between the ages of six and eight, we went and lived in America for two years because he worked for Heinz and he got transferred over there and we all oh, moved right. over. So I was in the in the States in the 60s. So there was a lot of, whether I probably was aware of it or not, there was just so much music on the radio and TV and Ed Sullivan Show, all those kind of things. So there was stuff going on that, you know, um, affected me. And then when I got back to... Um, you know, Melbourne, I was really interested in the monkeys first started. Remember that series, The Monkeys? Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> I remember watching that and thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great to be in a band and all live in the house, same house together and go and just have adventures <laughs> all the time? So, you know, that, that, you know, all that stuff yeah. was kind of just, you know, daydreaming and wanting to do uh, either play music or play footy. That were my two things. So. 
Right. Oh, which which um which code? Australian Australian AFL. 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 Okay. Yeah. AFL. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'm obviously rugby. Yeah. Yep. 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 Love my rugby. Is that the Tigers? Is that the Belmain Tigers up there? No, that's the that's the Wellington Hurricanes. Ah, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, they're they're the um they're my New Zealand region um Super Rugby team. Okay. Yeah. 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 So you got the Rebels down there, and we got yeah, the yeah. Waratahs here in Sydney. Oh, yeah, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Um, who were some of the the earlier drummers that you were kind of drawn to, or or some of the drummers on on the albums that your dad had? Well, um, the thing when I was old enough to listen to, like, understand it, I was probably a bit older, and I was um, there was a lot of Dave Brubeck stuff. So it was Joe Morello playing drums then, and of course there was a there was a live at Caesar's Palace Buddy Rich um, record that I used to listen to a bit, and uh, and another record that I used to play a lot when I was probably about you know a bit more thirteen, fourteen ish was uh, Lou Rawls Live, and it turns out that it was Earl Palmer on drums on that oh, record. Right. Wow. Yeah. Um, and he's you, since become probably one of my all-time favourite drummers. So. Yeah. Um, did you shoot for lessons straight away or were you just – No, no. No, I, it's really, you know, I kind of taught myself from about the age of 10 to 16, you know, just copying things off records, watching people play and just trying to work it out. And it was funny because I I'd always ask my dad, you know, Oh, you know, can you show me something? You go, nah, I'm not going to show you anything. When when you want to have lessons, you've got to go and learn properly. Yeah. So he showed me a paradiddle. That's the only thing he showed me. And, okay. Um, but I um and when I turned 16, he said, "All right, if you're going to be serious about this, you've got to go and have lessons." Yep. And I went and learnt the first drum lesson. I went to, uh, and once the guy that was teaching me showed me all these rudiments that I'd never come across in my life, and it was just was like, shit, I, you know, I want to give up. I'm never going to get this stuff down. <laughs> yeah. But I um, but I kind of persevered and, you know, spent the next three or four years working on all that stuff and getting, you know, the technique that was – and learning how to read and um, playing a lot of jazz. He, was, he got me into playing jazz and, you know, um, working on all that independent stuff, which was really cool. So it was a really valuable thing to do. But it was interesting because, like um, – I always say when people, you know, say, oh, my, my young kid wants to play drums, you know, they're really interested, should I have lessons? I say, well, not straight away. Just I, I always believe that you should form an attachment to the instrument naturally and, and form a love for it because the, the lessons will make you want to give up. <laughs> you know, like it's yeah. kind of, yeah. if you don't already have the love, the lessons are going to make you want to give up. So Exactly. You know, but once you start, once you get it, if you can keep, like the thing that saved me was I'd go home, I'd work on what I was supposed to be working on in the lessons, then I'd just go and bash around and play along with Bad Company and, you know, Led yeah. Zeppelin and all that kind of stuff and then go yeah. back to the lessons. And yeah. So that I always had that other side that was keeping the love alive and the other. And then I sort of, as I got to understand the technical side of things, I was drawn to music that had a bit more of that in it mm. and, um, then you'd go, oh, you know, I kind of think I know what that dude's doing. I don't know if I can do it, but I know, I know yep. what it might be. You know, yeah, so. yep, yep. So that teacher that was um, teaching you the rudiments, did he have yeah. you standing up at a snare drum? No, no, no. We no, didn't go see, super hard on. It was kind of like he um, he showed you the stuff, and then he let you do the work at home, and then you'd come back to it every now. And then it was more about reading, and it was more about learning how to read and put the, put it into practice 
And uh, he kind of sort of, I think he assumed that, okay, you know how to work a double stroke role. You've got to work on that, you know, half an hour a day on your own. And so you're up to you. It's like push-ups, you know, you, know, you don't yeah. waste, you don't waste less than time doing push-ups. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't, I don't really, I didn't really go and study snare drum rudiment. If I had gone to an actual snare drum teacher, I would have yeah. been doing all that kind of stuff, especially if it was classical based and all that kind of thing. So. Yeah. The, the reason I asked that is because my, my first, um, main teacher that's that's how it was for me i i would walk yeah. into walk into his room his name was norman gad he was the ex um new zealand symphony orchestra drummer and percussionist yeah. yeah and he was a hard ass man so i yeah. i would walk into the lessons and stand he'd be sitting down i'd have to stand up in front of him you know take my sticks out of the bag put my charts up and my rudiments yeah. and just played and he would just go nut again yeah. Nah, yeah. nah. Oh, and I'm like, you're gonna show me what you did wrong, and he'll he will be like, I've already shown you that. So just think about it and just do it, you know. So it kind of mm. pushed me away a little bit, but towards the end, he kind of probably saw me pulling back a little bit and said, "All right, let's jump on the drum kit today," you know. I'm yeah, like, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> started playing I some know. rock and roll, and he was a jazzer, you know. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, yeah. that's the thing. It's like. Um, it's almost, it, it comes down to like, it's, I did a lot more work on my technique after I'd, st- after I'd stopped having lessons, you know what I mean? So, like yeah, I went yeah. back and went over those lessons a bit more because mm-hmm. I was 16, 17, 18, I was still playing footy, you know? And, um, okay. um, when I, and then I kind of really started going, all right, if I'm going to play for real, I've got to, I've got to go. And because I had the books to work out of, you know, you had stick control and all those kind of books. So yep. once you had the books, you knew you just go through pages at a time and work on That's the exercises it. on yeah. your own. You and know? we had modern drummer as well. And, you know, yeah, yeah, it was exactly. always, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how was your, how was your musical taste starting to change and who were the drummers you were starting to listen to then where you're getting further into your teens? Yeah, I think like, you know, I was, like I said, my mid-teens, it was all about rock and roll and it was whatever records we had at the time. So it was, um, you know, it was always, if you're a drummer, you're into Deep Purple, you're into um, Bonham and I was in, but I was really into Bad Company and Simon Kirk and those kind of guys. But, but um, before that I was, like, like when I was starting, I was a huge Small Faces fan, so I was into that kind of, I was really into the English kind of um rock and roll sort of blues stuff when I was yep. in my mid-teens. And then as I got um, older, I was, you know, like I, I was always big into Bowie and Lou Reed and all those sort of people. But then I started listening to a bit more, um, uh, yeah, there was the, there was that prog thing that, you know, like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and yep. and then Yes with yes, Bill Bush. Yeah, yeah. That was where you started hearing all that snare drum stuff that you were having in your lessons. Yeah. And then my then I, my drummer got me, my drum teacher got me into this, the Tom Scott and the LA Express first, one of their albums called Tomcat, which was like, it was kind of the early days of what's now called fusion, but it was a little bit more, it was it was jazz rock more than, you know, like it was not as kind of lick based, it was like, it was complex, in it, but it was groovy as well, you know, it had grooves. Right. But I was also totally into average white bands. So I was big, oh, cool. huge, yeah. hugely into Steve Ferroni. So yeah. I kind of used to play along with that Cut the Cake album all the time, every day. And I was really into um, that uh, Renee Gaya album, Ready to Deal, with 
a Greg Tell on drums. So I'd just play along with those records every day. And um, and then, I've, then I'd get into Steely Dan and play along with Purdy. And then I went back and found the King Curtis records that he played on. And um, and then it was Jeff Beccaro and then it was Gad. Then I was totally into Gad. I was obsessed yeah. with Steve Gad for about three years. <laughs> yeah. And I just do everything that he was involved in. So Yeah. Uh, okay, what about what about bands? Had you got yourself into school band or something like that or yeah, bands well, or mates? Um, it was funny because I didn't really, you know, at school – there wasn't. I went to a school that didn't have many people playing music. You know, it was all sport and academics. So I kind of had a, a one one bunch of people that I hung out with that played music. Like it was a guitar player and another guitar player. We had a band with no bass player. That kind of vibe, you know. Right. Yep. And then when I was about eighteen, I just there was a there was another couple of bands in the neighbourhood that you knew. You didn't. They weren't your friends. They were sort of like the neighbouring kind of bunch of dudes from a different school. Yep. And I remember going up to the guitar player and asking him if he wanted to join my band, you know, like I was putting together <laughs> this other band. And we just started doing uh, things around town. And and then, um, yeah, that, that was funny because that, that was one of those things where it was just, it was parties and, you know, uh, the odd gig here and there supporting somebody on at a um, night. You know, like they used to have the, a lot of those kind of like, they weren't, it was pre-blue light disco. It was just like a, an underage <laughs> dance, you know what I mean? Like, so you'd be, yep. you'd be like the first band on the bill of five bands, you know, a yep. yep. bit of that. And then I got a phone call out of, out of the blue once I started getting a bit more serious about it by a guy by the name of Bill McDonald who is the bass player I've now played with for 42 years. In, right. He's in Paul Kelly's band and we just played. He just rang me up out of the blue to do this. He had this band they were all kind of music students at uh, they were at Melbourne State College, which was the probably the best jazz course at the time. This is in like the late seventies, early eighties, before the VCA became the, a really good jazz right. thing. And they were all like they were a level up from me in terms of like um, you know just capability. And so I had to lift my game. And I auditioned for this band and got the gig. And all of a sudden, I'm like I'm playing with these dudes that are playing the songs that I'm playing along with at home on records. Oh, you that's, know, cool. Like, yeah. that's cool. So it's kind of like, shit, man, I gotta, I'm got i in this band that's actually playing high-level, to me at the time, was like really high-level stuff. So it made me just dig in and practice all, you know, I, I started by then I was practicing like about four or five hours a day just, yeah. you know, trying to keep up with these guys. And um and then I, you know, like, I, and then after that, I played with Vince Jones for a while. And um, when he was just starting to sort of make his way in the jazz world, and uh, but I always felt like a bit of a phony playing jazz because I was like, um, <laughs> I, I always loved the, I love the, I love the kind of like R and B funk element that was in that sort of crossover. I wasn't a big fan of fusion in terms of the amount of notes in it, but I liked, yeah. Yeah. I loved Gad and I loved Harvey Mason and all those sort of people, but I used to get called up to do a lot of bebop gigs, so I'd have to bullshit my way through it. And, I, you know, I I knew enough technique because I'd studied it, but to actually sit there and be really convincing playing that kind of music was sort of like always felt like um, I was out of my depth a bit. But 
and I, and I used to get, get these, you know, phone calls from people like Ken Schroeder, who's like a hardcore bebop sax player, and, you know, he'd bring me to fill in for some guy that was like an A-grade <laughs> pop guy. And, um, <laughs> but, I, you know, and he liked the fact that I didn't overplay and that, that I could swing. So I sort of got these gigs because I could swing and I wasn't, like, chopping out all the time. And um, so... That was kind of a really good thing too. I felt like, okay, they like that. But I, my heart was never in it. And when um, I had some lessons off um, this uh, New York drummer by the name of Adam Nussbaum, have you ever come across yeah, him at all? Yeah, I've heard of him, yep. Yeah, well, he was. He came out. They used to do these Jamie Abersold clinics in every year where you'd pay money and you'd do a, a week or two with these, you know, all these New York musicians that come out and run these ensembles and you'd play with them, you'd hang out with them for a week. Anyway, he was my drum teacher and um, I sat with him and had a lesson and he said, you know, he goes, hey, man, you play a lot of rock and roll, right? And I said, yeah, how can you He goes, I can tell by the way you move around the kit. And um, and he said, so what do you want to be a jazz musician? I said, I oh, know, I kind of feel like I should. And he goes, <laughs> he, goes um, he goes, but you live in Melbourne. Melbourne's a rock and roll city. If you were in New York, or somewhere like that, I'd say, yeah, but here. And I went, you know what? You're right. Fuck it. I'm going to play rock yeah. and roll. So I kind of like I, <laughs> I credit him as being the guy that turned me around and, um, you know, said just follow where your heart is. And, you know, and I, and I sort of told, you know, all my buddies in the jazz world that I was, I want, I was looking for more of a rock and roll R&B gig and they all kind of looked at me like, why would you do that? Why would you leave the jazz? It's the highest form of music, you know? Because I remember saying to uh, the bass player in the band at the time, Bill, because now, you know, I said, two reasons. I want someone to set up my kit and I want there to be girls at the gig. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, but, but Adam showed me about three things that I always pass on to young jazz drummers about how to get, if, you, if you're sort of floundering in a jazz gig, as long as you don't play the one, you always play, you always anticipate the one, play the, the, the four and or the four and um, just vary your ride cymbal patterns and listen to the dynamics and just keep an eye on play music and play conversations. You go. You can pretty much get through a gig in that yeah. world as long as it's not four hundred BPM. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're that you're playing playing footy. Was there ever a, a time there where um, you thought footy might be your future, or like, did you? Was there ever a crossroads between the football well, and the music? I, was, I think when I was uh, seventeen or sixteen, I realised seventeen. I realised I was never going to be, in my mind, I was better than I actually was, you know. Oh, <laughs> that old chestnut. So, uh, <laughs> so once that happened, I went, uh, you know, this is, I'm going to play another couple of years just for fun and then, okay. you know, and then concentrate on playing music. So, But the, okay. the great moment where the two came together was when um, in the 2011 grand final, uh, I'm a Collingwood supporter, I, I got to play on the MCG playing the Collingwood theme song with a choir before the 2011 grand final. Oh, so wow. it's kind of like that was pretty cool. <laughs> it clashes the two worlds, yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so you've um, <laughs> you've 
you've um you've gone to try and find a roadie and some chicks, right? So you've, yeah. you've... <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what was what was the next step after that? Did you have a sort of a were you playing some rock stuff as well as the? Yeah, I always did, yeah. but I kind okay. of I went through a few auditions, and um, the the thing that kept coming back was, oh, you know, I really like your feel, but you don't play hard enough. You don't your your backbeat's not strong enough. So I thought, shit, I'm going to have to go and get a gig so I can just learn how to do that shit. And mm. I, I did a – there was a band in Melbourne, a guy named Tinsley Waterhouse, who's still kicking around. I think he's like a lovely guy, a real journeyman, sort of like R&B guy. And he'd have these bands that would work, you know, six gigs a week. And I joined it for like about seven months. So just playing that stuff, getting blisters on your hands, you know, just playing – and learning how to lay into the two and four. And he always turned around and goes, come on, catch that rim, catch that rim, give me yeah. something, you know. Yeah. And then uh, um, I, at, through that I ended up getting seen by um, Stephen Cummings who was in the sport. The sports had just finished. I don't know if, you know, you remember the sports? No. And I, um, he was putting together a, a, a short little band um, for about a month and I, I ended up, joining that, which I thought was going to be the thing that, oh, man, this is it now. I've made it, you know. And then he pulled, he kind of pulled the pin on that after a while. And Wilbur Wilde was playing saxophone in that band and um, he kept another, he kept the side project of that going and it was just his own thing, doing a lot of R&B covers. And that was, again, you know, six nights a week, you know, for months. I was in that band for about seven months as well. So it was kind of like a couple of years of, um, you know, like a year and a bit of playing every night, just playing rock and roll at high volume, mm-hmm. and and then then Stephen came back and decided he wanted to do another, a proper solo record, and so he did a bunch of shows, and I played on that tour, and then I ended up playing on that record on his first solo album. It was my first proper recording. That was in 1983, mm-hmm. and um, and then I through that working on you know with him, I met Joe Camilleri. And then I, I kind of joined the, the, an early version of the Black Sorrows then. And I kind of kept working between um, Stephen and the Black Sorrows for the next couple of years. You know, whatever, whoever's working, you'd go out and do their shows because <coughs> no one was doing a full year. And then the Black Sorrows kind of in about 1987 started to become a lot more of a touring band. Mm. And then in 88 when we did the Hold On To Me record when Vicar and Linda joined, that was it. We did three years where we were doing like 250 shows a year. So, and I met Paul Kelly through um, working with Joe. So, all of those things kind of just fall in. And through all this, I was doing, you know, like when you, re- I was doing uh, recordings for different people because someone, some producer who did a Stephen Cummings record or a, or a Black Size record would get you to play on someone else's record that they were yeah. producing. So it all started to kind of um, slowly blossom out of those three projects really. Mm. Just going back to your first recording session, do mm. you do you remember that and how you approached it and did I you do. Did you, okay. <laughs> I remember it like I remember it like a, 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 a kind of like when you wait it's like it's some kind of traumatic experience <laughs> it was um it was funny because 
it was, if you go back to, I mean, it's funny because it'd be great to talk to Hamish about this kind of stuff because Hamish is around about the same age as me yep. and we came through, you know, recording at the same time. That in yep. 19, in the sort of early, you know, like 82, 83, was when drum machines were taking over yep. every drum gig in the world. So to order, in order to justify your existence as a drummer, you had to be able to play Along, you know, in time with a click track and a drum machine, mm. so that they could say, "Okay, we'll use you instead of that." So I went in to do this record, and I didn't really know what to expect. And Ernie Rose was um, engineering it, and he'd just done all that LRB stuff and all that. So he was pretty, you know, he'd done a lot of stuff, and he was a little bit, um, you know, he was in there, but he he wasn't really prepared to sort of like. Um, pussyfoot around me, you know what I mean? So yeah. I had to yep. get the shit done pretty quickly and um, mm-hmm. I was freaking out going, oh, man, because the, the way they recorded it was they put down a guide vocal, a drum machine and a couple of chords, you know, on a guitar or keyboard and then they, then we just do the drums to that. So mm-hmm. they'd listen to every, you know, all right, that's good, yeah, that's a bit rushed, that's, a, you know. So I was mm-hmm. like freaking out thinking I'm wasting their time but we ended up doing seven tunes in two days which is pretty pretty good standards yeah. by then mm. but I, I got home from that session and I couldn't I couldn't even look at a drum kit for about a week because I thought you know that's it I've blown it I've blown my career <laughs> and I and I um I read this great article with Andy Newmark and he was talking about how he um you know, his first ever recording session, he, you know, he'd listened back and he was rushing and he, he got replaced and he said, oh, you know, like it freaked him out. And so when I had lessons off this one guy that said to him, listen, get a metronome, put it on the slowest possible setting and play a paradiddle with each note and try not to flam with it and do it for half an hour. So I did that every day for six months, half an hour, metronome 35 Playing a paradiddle and trying to, and I'm thinking if I ever get another chance in the studio, I'm going to be ready. So, yeah, um, right, and, and I, you know, luckily I did, and um, and I was a lot more prepared mentally. And then the funny thing after that was I got really good at playing the clicks, doing all that kind of stuff. And then everyone in the sort of late '80s decided, no, nah, let's not use clicks, let's play live. <laughs> but yeah, but but not only that, let's let's get you to play live, and then let's check it with a click after oh. the, you know. So, yeah. so we do it. We go in and do live takes, and then you know the producer be sitting there with it, with a metronome, making sure that it was stayed within a couple of BPM of the starting tempo. So it's right. a different kind of pressure. And luckily, because I'd done that work, my clock, my internal clock was pretty good, so I could sort of maintain. Apart from you know, you had to you know, it's like anything. You have to kind of fight against the natural tendency to get excited. You know, because every time you get excited, you'd always there'd be a slight lunging of tempo. So you'd have to sort of, you know, the art form of just trying to stay inside yourself, but still get a vibey take going. Mm. And um, it's one of those things that you just try and get better and better at, and you still try and get better and better at it after <laughs> 150 odd records. So you know, yeah, um, that's that's cool. Did you did you kind of like you just mentioned about the rushing. Oh, hang on. Let me just go back a little bit. Like yeah. you were saying that um, you read that article with Andy Newmark, practice to a click 30 BPM, and then you started doing that. That obviously, that explains why, like at the start of this, I mentioned that Pearl Zildjian thing, and you've got yeah. that sort of perma triangle at that kind of tempo. Yeah. You obviously, yeah. that's obviously from back then, yeah? Yeah, and, and it's something that I always go back to. 
because you can always you can always brush up that kind of stuff. Like I mean, we all you know you all we all hopefully that have been playing music for a long time have an internal clock and a vibe and a groove. But mm. it's always good to fine tune it. It's like any skill you want to keep going back to it and refining it, just so that when you're in a stressful situation like where your adrenaline's high like on live television or you know recording studio you know that your bottom line is still going to be pretty good so just on that then after the you know having not played with paul kelly band since january um last year and then doing that new year's eve gig how did you feel that your internal clock did you did you notice any change in it did you no i kind of knew that i think i think the whole time during lockdown I still approached every day like I've got to be ready in case there's a gig next week. Okay, cool. And I did actually go a little bit. I thought I'm going to use that time to do all that, you know, pyramid stuff. But what I did was um, uh, before uh, about – because we knew that gig was happening, for about a month before it, I actually went in. My brother's got a – uh, recorded in you know, like a recording setup in his studio. Mm-hmm. So I went in and there's a kit there and I just practiced on my own um, on a kit playing along with the Paul Kelly live stuff or just playing to a click or just playing a group, one groove. I, I, I do this thing where I play a groove with no fills for 10 minutes with a click and then do the same groove without a click. So, you know, and just get to feel, sit down and just get comfortable with the space and and mm-hmm. then if I know I've done that work, I don't think about it when I'm playing. You know what I mean? Like I, yep. I just go, all right, the gig is the gig. I've done the work. If I hadn't done the work, I'd probably be freaking yeah. out. You know, okay. like, but yep. knowing you've done the work makes you just relax a bit more and just play music, have fun yep. and play music. You know? Yep. Um, before we go back to the Black Sorrows thing, you're a left-hander, so you play yep. completely left-handed kit. Now, I, I – should have asked this earlier on, so we don't have to bounce around too much. But um, if you talk to if you talk to Hamish, Hamish is a left hander as well. Mm. Hamish learnt to play on a right handed kit because um, there was only right handed kits around. Yeah, yeah. And he thought he had to learn on a right handed kit until yeah. later on when he realised he saw somebody with a left handed kit. <laughs> but he'd already, already trained himself to play as a right hander. So. Yeah, yeah. So for your for yourself, was there um, somebody to tell you, or had you seen a, a left-handed drummer playing a left-handed kit? Because obviously, you know, we all know m- most most of us know that there's not that many left-handed drummers around. Yeah. So every every catalogue you look in or magazine that you know, unless that person's a left-handed player, that's trying to sell you a right-handed drum kit. Yeah, I, it's funny because I, I remember watching drummers and thinking they're playing their hi hat with their main hand, yeah, and it's right, like, and it's and it's crossing their hands. I'm thinking, yeah. all right, so I bet I, I might I better put mine over this side of the kit because that's so I can look like them being being a lefty. So I can't. I just made that decision myself. Yeah, and then, and then once I did, it, I went, yeah, that feels what it should be like, you know, and mm. um, that was when I was nine. Right. So, so you wouldn't, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have seen Ian Pace Deep Purple at that nah, stage? None of that. Okay, I had right, no okay. idea. Nah, yep. No, I was just, I just knew that they were playing the kit with their hands crossed over and they were playing with their right hand and I'm going, well, I know I'm left-handed, so that's got to yep. be on the other side of the kit, you know, so. Yeah. So you're totally left-handed everything? Yeah, yeah, completely, yeah. Completely, yeah, yeah, because I'm, um, I'm a little bit of both. Like I'll, you know, I can like throw with my right hand. My right arm's my right, my strong arm, but my left hand I write with. Yeah, right. Okay. Dart with play pull left handed. 
Um, I kick off my left foot, not my right. Oh, there you go. Yeah, <laughs> I could play a little bit of open hand and, and well, that's that, it. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're yeah. lucky. <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, all right, going back to the, the Black Sorrows thing. Okay. Yep. At that stage, you were doing 200-plus gigs um, a year. Yeah. And these other opportunities are, are starting to come about. So um, when did it start to move away from from Black Sorrows? What happened there? Was it was it the Paul Kelly thing had come along at that stage or? It was, it was kind of like um, we'd done so much touring and, you know, like any band that's been a, there's been a, a lot of touring. Then you go to, you get to the point, go, okay, where do we go now? Do we get bigger and try and concentrate overseas? Uh, and Joe had kind of hit a point where he um, uh, didn't want to tour as much overseas because he sort of, I think it was just taxing and costing a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, which was really weird because we had the biggest record we'd ever had in a few territories at that time. We should have toured it. Right. Uh, and, and also just it comes down to, you know, uh, he, he was sort of like pushing to sort of have a bit more control over it, like because it became a lot more of a band and he was yep. now, like, shit, the, I owe too much to the band now. I want to do so. So I kind of sensed that and I started doing a few more things outside the band. And, mm-hmm. um, and then there was a... There was stuff going on with record company debt that was, um, you know, they were taking money off all the records that we had, you know, so we weren't making – I was right. co-producing the records with Joe and and the, we were we were not getting, you know, producer money on the best of that we're supposed to get and all that kind of shit, you know. It was just – it was basically mm-hmm. he, had, he had a pretty shit record deal at the time okay. was one of those old old-fashioned cross recouping deals which they started to try and bring back in now which is where every time you start making a record that money starts to pay for the last one so right okay you know and i just went oh, fuck it you know and i and i did it i ended up um doing some stuff with paul um i i did this cuz i was doing a bunch of uh, studio work for a, a lot of mushroom acts they went out, they put together this uh, thing for South by Southwest in 93 yep. and me and Bill and Shane O'Mara were the house band for all these different ars- artists. It was Deborah Conway, Archie Roach, uh, Rebecca Barnard, um, a few other people and Paul was living in the States at the time. He'd, mm-hmm. The messengers split and he was just doing a solo thing. So he asked if we could be his band for these shows. It was three shows and we rehearsed and he had a bunch of new songs and he said, oh, while you're over here, let's. I booked a studio. Let's go and do some demos for some new songs. So we we ended up um, doing these tracks, and two of them ended up, three of them ended up on the One Man album, which is that. Mm. Um, and then he moved back to Australia, and I saw him in the street, and I said, um, oh, "I've just left the Black Sorrows. If you're looking for a drummer to tour, I'm <laughs> really up for it." And he gave me that kind of like wry smile, or like as if to say, "Yeah, maybe you know, you know, it doesn't he didn't give much away." And then about two weeks later, I get a phone call and he goes, were you serious about wanting to do this? And he goes, because I'm doing a, a four-week tour in January and I'm bringing out this American guitar player they've been playing with. So I went and did that. That was at the start of 94. Mm-hmm. And then um, he did a really big tour in the middle of the year and I managed to, um, 
you know, steal a few other people from a few other bands. To, I said, oh, you know, I reckon this guy. And we pretty much put a band together that stayed stayed his band for, that was the Deeper Water album. And we, we could, that band stay together for a few years in that lineup. And then, so I've been playing with Paul since then, which is 27, 28, nearly 28 years. Mm. So have you ever had to miss a Paul Kelly gig? I've only missed, um, I missed one because we'd had a, we had a rock quiz show, uh-huh. uh, tour booked, and there was a Splendor in the Grass gig that came up out of nowhere. And I, I just couldn't, I, I said to him, I can't blow out this rock quiz gig because it's, it's too short a notice, you know. Yeah. So I, I had a guy, uh, it's funny, when my daughter, who's now five, when she was born, we were doing a, a um, tour, a Down the Green tour, and Marlon Williams was doing the opening spot on the tour, and his drummer is a friend of mine, and Gus Agars, and I said, dude, I'll give you 200 bucks to learn the set in case I have to go after, you know, in case my partner hadn't had the baby yet. So it ended up that he, um, he learnt the set, and I ended up having to take a few days off because once she was born, I just wanted to be home for a week. Of course. It was really cool. Yep. And then, um, and so he knew a lot of the songs, so he could fill in on that Splendor set, which is only a one-hour set. Right. And then, and then when in 2017, when um, uh, we did the Life is Fine album, we did ended up doing the biggest lot of touring we've done since 2004 including an eight and a half week tour of overseas and my my daughter was just one and a half at the time and I just said to Paul look I can't be away for eight and a half weeks um you know I'm happy for you to get someone else if you if you want to but I'd really like to do the Australian tour and he goes look Australian tour is a no-brainer do what you can and we'll get Gus to fill in so I did four and a half weeks and then Gus filled in for the second Four and uh, I got to go home and be helpful, and then did the Australian tour after that. So yeah, that's sort of like those sort of circumstances, you know. Yeah, right. That's cool. Yeah, because I was going to ask a little once we start talking about rock was what was the sort of the priority there? But it sounds like you kind of you worked both, so they weren't clashing. Well, we always used to know what was going on. Yeah, we used to know what was going on each year. And Rock was when it was shooting, mm. we'd only work, there was only three months of the year where we'd do a whole series. You know, we'd do two shows at a time. So you'd end up with oh, 14 right. shows done within a couple of months, you know. Okay. But it looked like it went longer because it was on. It was stretched out for the whole so time. So many years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Uh, so just just on playing with Paul Kelly then. So, What's he like as a band leader? What's his um, expectation from you guys? Maybe that probably doesn't apply too much these days because it's you know it's a it's a given now. You know you all know what you're supposed to be doing, but sort of early on there, what um, what was the expectation he put on you, or did you guys just know what what had to be done when you went into that environment? Well, he would he would allow you to come in. Like he would always have this thing where uh, he would let he he want to hear what you had first. You know what I mean? Like, and then if if he was sort of if we wasn't feeling like oh you know if it wasn't feeling right, he'd go, "What else you got?" 
know, like in the, okay. you go, yeah, that's more like it, you know, like, okay. but mostly it's, he sort of left it, you know, there are certain songs like when you go to the back catalogue, you have to play, they, they, right, you got to, there's certain things that you play that have to be played the way they're recorded because that's what people want to hear. But when yep. it's new songs, he might actually just come in with a guitar part and then see what we've got. Yep. And, you know, there's times where uh, the part that you come up with ends up being the the best thing for the song and there's times when he'll just trim it down or he'll say, what else you got? And then you'll play something and go, yeah, I like that. So a lot of it's just, um, you know, working until it feels right. But now it's kind of like the band at the moment has been together, this lineup's been together for 13 years. So we all know each other pretty well. So there's a yeah. there's a real chemistry. But even yeah. then there's times when he'll go, nah, it's not, it doesn't feel right. What, you know, let's let's look at what we're doing. What are you doing there? I, you know, so it's always negotiation. But but he'll always mm. he trusts everyone in the band to come up with um, parts because he knows that we have the song, the best interests of the song at our yeah. hearts. You know, like we we have so much respect for Paul as a artist and and as a band leader that we just want to, you know, basically add to the song and stay out of the way of it where, where need be, you know what I mean? Like if you're not if you're not adding something that's making the song better, then basically what you want to do is allow the song to breathe by, you know, staying out of its way and just playing what you think is going to help. You know, it can be it's it, it really makes you think it's it, it it's incredibly um interesting. It, like it's a really great way to play music. It's um it's as complex, it, you know, for something that people that don't listen hard hear as quite simple music, it's actually mm. quite the opposite. It's, it's, yep. It requires you to really, really get inside the song and, and, you know, appreciate what the craft of songwriting is and uh, how to let things speak and how to support and how to add when you need to add when you want to give it a drive, when you want to do something that's exciting or when you do something that's a little left field or like he's open to all those kind of things, you know. Mm. You know, after being in that lineup for 13 years and like you said, you're really, really close and, you know, often living out of each other's, you know, bags and that kind of stuff. Yeah. This, do you feel complacency comes in sometimes with yourself or with band. the others? That, not, okay, no, cool. It's funny. In this lineup, right. no. I think in the past yep. – there's probably been reasons why bands, certain lineups have changed because people do get a little bit, especially when you're touring a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think I think we've all gotten to the point where the fact that we still are really interested in getting better as musicians, we want to get better at this. This is our way of expressing what we do, and and just you know, it, it's I think you just it's a real privilege to play that music. And you, mm. you approach it like that, you know. It's like you can't get complacent because it's like, you know, Bill, the bass player, and I say to each other all the time, he doesn't need us. You know, he yeah. likes having us, but he doesn't need us. He can yeah. do this without us, you know what I mean? Yeah. So we want, yeah. to make, we want to make our contribution worthy so that it feels like he wants us, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's like, haven't you got a saying, and I've got this written down somewhere, um, you, you got a, you guys have got a saying. How long can how long can we get away with this? Oh yeah, you know that's me and Bill. Yeah, every New Year's Eve we always say, yeah, we we did it again this week. We go, all right, let's see if we can get away with it for another year. <laughs> and that's just playing music in general. Yeah, you know? right. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Um, 
All right. So let's talk about Rock Quiz now. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? Where were you? How did you get involved? Um, were you, this is sort of multi-pronged, um, were you MD right from the start in the Rock Quiz Orchestra? Um, no, we were, we were kind of, <clears throat> it's one of those stories, it's a classic, you know when you when people talk about things that happen in your career that are just luck or if you weren't there for that phone call, things would have been really different. Yep. This is one of those situations where I was driving home from somewhere, it was a wet afternoon, it was about 2 o'clock, and Brian Ancurvis rings me up and goes, hi, what are you doing this afternoon? I'm just doing this, we're just putting together this, weird little TV pilot with a you know music trivia thing and we just need a house band to play a couple of play-ons and playoffs. He ran, you know, and I went, yeah, all right, yeah, I can be there. So it's just me, Mark Ferry and James Black. We just, we all knew, knew each other and we played together at different times in different bands. We just all rocked up. Neither of us knew who was, we just all turned up. And it was a pilot that they shot and it wasn't until a year later that anything became of it. So... You know, a year later, we get a call saying they want to do a proper pilot, like in at the SP with a you know audience and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then it looked like it was going to be something. And then when they commissioned mm-hmm. the show, it was kind of like it all just happened organically. And mm-hmm. there wasn't really an MD. Like it was, um, it was one of those things where we all just you know brought our own things in. But then James became uh, the post production guy. So he he was doing all the um, He'd go into the studio with Mick Letho, who would engineer it, and do all the mixing and, you know, um, trimming, cutting, all that kind of stuff. So he became a real part of that. So because he was doing all that side of things, he would, you know, he'd record all the rehearsals and say, oh, have a listen to this. I reckon we could we could change the feel in this, you know, differently. So he, he sort of took on that role. And then when he left, I took over the role as MD. So... Okay. That was the first. That was the official first time we had an MD. Yeah, right. <laughs> I recall, okay. James, James was kind of like the music producer. You know what I mean? Yeah, he, yeah. His role was like a producer. Yeah, and there was no there was no charts, was there? It was no. Was no like, if you saw my floor, Tom, if you ever saw a camera go on my floor, Tom, in some of those old episodes, there's my charts there. A couple of little <laughs> notes written on. There was a, there was a floor, Tom, that had so much writing on it. I should have kept it for <laughs> some kind of hall of fame yeah. thing. And yeah. um, but that was where most of my charts were. Yeah. Um. So there's twelve that ran for twelve years. Yeah. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong with with some of these stats, and it was that was. Uh, 14 seasons, is that right? How do you get 14 seasons? Yeah, yeah, you do like, like, I, can't remember. I think it was 14 okay, yeah. seasons. Yeah, yeah, 11 years, 14 seasons. Yeah. Yeah, 180, 180-something yeah, yeah, odd yeah. episodes, right. Yeah. And that's um, that's playing different music from different artists every single time. Yeah. That's like a dream gig, man. Like, like Yeah, it was definitely um, – it was one of those things that kept you on your toes, but it also mm-hmm. was made you really appreciate what it, what it, I was so lucky that I was a big music fan growing up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you, you just I listened to so many styles, and that's sort of been the thing that's kept me pretty much in work in that world is that the ability to cross between styles and make them sound fairly authentic. You know what I mean? Like, and you know, and that comes down 
from actually respecting all these different styles, you know. If you have yeah. to sound like an 18-year-old on this song, you sound like an 18-year-old on this song, you know. like um, right. And um, and then there's things that are, that are a little bit like more of a stretch where you go, shit, this is like a little bit more technical than, than what you'd normally do, and you know, depending on who it was. And you just do the work, go home and try and do the work and try and get it done. And you're never going to. You're never going to make it sound like the person that's been playing drums in that band for ten years. You know, right? So right. All I, all my thing was was to try and do the homework and give it the respect, and try and make it so that I could. Uh, I used to sometimes say to the you know singer songwriters, look. The part that's on the record is really cool, but it's I'm not going to get that down authentically in one rehearsal. Do you mind if I go the way that I could, you know, play it comfortably? Because it's going to be better for you if I play confidently. And they go, "Yeah, cool, man. Yeah, you know, yeah." Because I actually, if I'm going to be fumbling around trying to play this complex hi hat part that I need to spend two weeks on. It's just going to sound like I'm fumbling, and uh, you don't want that on national television. You know, when you so I just say, look, you know, I respect the song and I'd love to do it the way that it is on the record, but I've got like one rehearsal, so let's just play it the way I feel comfortable playing it. Then then it'll sound confident and most people won't know it. Yeah. I, Only I people that'll your... know is the drummer in the band that knows that yeah. you're not playing the part right. <laughs> yeah. I read your um I read your interview in the 2011 Drum Scene magazine yeah. and, and you're talking about um when Andrew Stockdale Came on the show from yeah. his mother. Yeah, do you want to do you want to tell that story? Yeah, yeah. Like he had this <laughs> drum part that he played himself, mm. and it was such an unusual part. Like it was like this full on eighth note kick drum part that was like something with the hi hats that I would never play. Yeah, and I was like, dude, <laughs> you know. But I, I went home and I just I just shedded it for you know twenty four hours and got it down. But it was yeah. so so unusual. But it was like. Well, that's your song and that's the way you hear it. Another guy yeah. that's really interesting is Paul Dempsey, you know, when on, on his solo stuff, he plays drums on it and he's a yeah. really good drummer. So and then they're not parts that you would normally think of. So, you know, sometimes you have to play that and shit. I, I say to him, This is such an unnatural part for me, but I'll I'll just give it my damnedest to try and get it right, you know. Yeah. And you just do it and then you learn something new out of out of when you go hard on learning it, you, you you'll come away with some idea that you wouldn't have thought of before, you know. Yeah. So you were saying when you set like when you would go in um, to shoot, you'd shoot two episodes in one shot. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Mostly, so yeah. how does a week in in the life of rock quiz go for you? How, right, how well, would that how would that week go? Okay, so I was also the talent booker on the on the show with one other guy. Oh, right. Right. But I wouldn't tell anyone that because if they saw my they they put my name on the credits one year and then I had everyone ringing me trying to get on the show so <laughs> it's kind of like I just said take my name off of yeah. the credits so Pete, and, like buddy buddy mate yeah me and one of the other guys was we'd go chasing the talent and once we had an artist locked in sometimes the artist wouldn't be locked in until the week before the shoot you know like a hundred percent locked in especially if they were internationals. If we knew the song, we'd get the songs and, and James and Mark and I would get together at James's house possibly the Friday before the shoot week and run all the play-ons and playoffs that we knew just, just in his, his lounge room. And then we'd have a day on a Monday, we'd go in and we'd, we'd um, have 
a day, the morning where we'd run all the stuff we needed to run for a couple of hours, then the artists would come in that um, afternoon and we'd have one run through with them and then they'd do the duets and then the next day we'd shoot, we'd do one more camera rehearsal with the artists and then we'd shoot the show live that night to both shows. Right. But then as it got, as the music got more, um, we started adding more songs to the shows. So we started doing two, two shoots over two, two shows over two days instead of okay. two in one night. But there was, it seemed like there was more work, but it was kind of like, it was better because you didn't, you'd go in and rehearse the, the first day and you wouldn't think about this. You'd, you'd rehearse both shows on the Monday and then on the Tuesday, you'd only worry about the show on that day. And then, yeah, on the, yeah, yeah. On, then the next day, you'd worry about that show. So, yeah. Yep. But I mean, because we shot live, unless there was a disaster, we'd, we'd film it like it was live. So there was that adrenaline of live television. So, yeah. The first time you ever played live on television, how, mm. how was that? Do you remember how you felt? Yeah, you it was terrible. It? I hated yeah. it. Um, and that was was that rock, was that for Rockwiz? Was that no, first? no, no? Okay, the first first live TV stuff was um, uh, those midday shows. You know, those you, you go yeah. on and play a song, on, you know, and you'd be or some morning show. So you'd be you'd be ten o'clock in the morning, and you have to play a rock and roll song in a television show that sounded like, you know the deadest thing in the world and you yeah. just go, oh, man, this is terrible and everyone's watching. So yeah, that was probably the early days. And then a couple of specials, TV specials that the Sorrows did, like live ones. Okay. And then, you, I mean, it's funny because Rock Quiz sort of made you get your head around the live um, television thing, but the, the difference was that it was set up so it sounded like a gig. So the sound was fantastic and, it, and there were people yeah. there and they were drinking. And then you go and do it. You go in to do a, another live TV show, like a morning show, and think oh, I've got this down. And you go in there, and go, oh, this sounds terrible. So <laughs> it never got. It's never gotten to the point where you just go, oh yeah, I've got this. You know, it's, right. there's always some spanner somewhere yeah. to look out for. <laughs> yeah. Um, can we talk about your 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 drum sound a little bit? Um, yep. And I know when I when I first saw you, you know, on Rock Quiz for me. And you know, it's almost a, well. I, I'm, I'll say this: it's almost like a signature of yours is that swampy '70s type snare drum sound. Mm. And around that time, you know, I'd all the snare drums that I'd played, I always had them cranked tight. And the stuff you listened to on the radio was cranked tight, but you always had the swampy, that swampy snare drum sound, right? Was there ever a time through um, to your career early on? Where that, I mean, obviously there's always going to be little variables in sound, but did you ever play snare drum cranked up? Oh, you know yeah, I mean? yeah. Oh, you did? Anything. Okay. Anything yeah. I did in from about 1983 to about 93 was it was all cranked, you know? Like, it was all that, okay. Oh, right. man, all the time, yeah, you know. Um, right. But uh, I think I just started getting into it a bit more when I started um, – it was that thing like I was always really big on that Levi Helm kind of drum sound, you know, like and um, and then in the in the rock quiz band, because we were quite quiet on stage, I sort of had a, a drum sound that I thought was not too loud and sat pretty well in a, in a three-piece band and it, and it was kind of a sound that suited a lot of different styles um, 
And every now and then I'd have to bring in a second snare. If I was if it was a hip-hop tune, you know, we wanted a, a yep. more cracky sort of thing, so I'd have a second snare for that. But I sort of worked it, I found, found like a sound that I thought worked in a lot of signature styles, you know, that worked pretty well. And that became my thing and I got really obsessed with it, and, you know. Um, and, I, and it's something I use a lot this year. But it's funny because in the last, probably in the last three years, I've gone back to a higher tune sn- snare live, you know. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And I, but what I do now is I, I tune the snare lot up fairly high, but I have yeah. all these different cutout um, drum the heads. Like, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the one that's only got a hole about that big in it, like, you know, like size of a, uh, you know, bit bigger than a coin, which is the super yeah. fat sound. Then, yeah. I, then I might have one that's a little, you know, and then I've got a 20 cent piece with some gaffer on it that just sits there for just to take the edge off it. Yeah. So there are all these different, yeah. and so I'll just, I can use the one drum and get about five sounds out of it. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and you play pearl drums, you played pearl drums for a long time. Yeah, um, yeah since the 80s, yeah. yeah. Since the 80s, right. Yeah. Um, why, why pearl drums? I, I mean, well, I know why, because I play pearl drums and I've yeah. played pearl drums for, since, since the 90s as well. Yeah. Um, what and with the pearl drums, have you always kind of kept up with the technology of pearl, or have you found like a range of drums over I, I the years say, that you've stayed? I, look, I, I think I really loved that the, the lighter shell master series when they came out. You know, like yeah, sort of because of the old yeah. like. And but I but I've I've sort of when the um uh those reference drums came out, they're super heavy, but they sounded awesome. So I started using them, and that, they've kind of been the drums that I've just. I think the thing is, I find they're really quick to tune live, and they're really easy to get a sound out of. And I, I was using smaller drums a lot. Like I used to use just a twelve and a fourteen and a twenty, but I've sort of gone to a bigger drums. When I play with Paul, I use bigger drums live. Um, you know, like twenty two, thirteen, sixteen. Um, but um, they just they're consistent, and and it's just one of those things like. You know, in the studio, I tend to use a lot more vintage gear. You know, like I use lots of old Ludwig stuff and, you know, live I want a, a sound that's kind of consistent that can do, you know. I always find that pe- people that kind of are obsessed with taking their vintage kits on the road, it's like, dude, once you go through a PA, it doesn't sound <laughs> like, it just sounds like every other kit. So you might as well have yeah. a kit that's not going to fall apart on tour and it's consistent that's it. and up really yeah. well. Yeah, <laughs> good luck tuning it. Yeah, Keeping yeah. it in tune all night, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, okay. So back back to rock was. Um, did you see the writing on the wall regarding the the season being uh, the series being cancelled? When the the giveaway was when SBS got their funding cut. You know, when the, uh, the government cut <coughs> the SBS funding, you just knew that. They had to justify <clears throat> two things happen. Funding gets cut and then you get a change of management at SPS. Right. So those two things. And everybody that comes in, every new board member wants to take it in a new direction. And um, right. so they and start. Then the arts, and then the arts always suffer, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's also like, well, why, do we, why are we paying, you know, 60-odd grand for an episode of an Australian talent show when we can get 10 shows on Viceland from overseas for the same money? And that's what happened. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. How did you, how did you take that when it was that final call was was made that it was not come back? 
Oh, I think there was a year where we thought it would still happen, even even in that, that we still thought oh, right. they might come because they kept they they never sit they never cut it off, and you know they keep saying <clears throat> we can't do it this year, we might do it next year. So it sort of just fizzled out more than a definite ending, you know. Okay, you talked um, earlier too about um, there being some Rockers regional shows. Yeah, we tour. We still tour every. Every second year we do a big tour. Yeah, right. Yeah, because, I mean, the, the good thing about when you've got a television show is that keep, they keep repeating the shit out of it on Viceland and SBS, so it's like you've got an infomercial for your tour. Yeah. So yeah. you go, yeah. You know, <laughs> so you can it's still a- go out and play in these, you know, shows because people still know the show. So, um, and, they, you yeah. know, and, and the live show is always entertaining. We usually get pretty good guests on, you know, so that's, that always works too. Yeah, any... Any talk or any chatter about it possibly coming back on TV on another uh, network? Or every year, there's a little bit of a sniff, but you know, oh, was until <laughs> until it's actually happening, I don't even think about it. Uh, okay, that's that's good. That's good. Um, want to talk a little bit about your your technique? Yep. And how you've developed? Um, what I sort of will describe it as kind of. When you're when you're playing your low volume stuff, you're you're a wrist player. You, mm. you keep your arms fairly, fairly still, and it very much reminds me of Jim Keltner. Oh, good. Well, that's probably the, the, the highest that... compliment I can, you could ever give me. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Are you a Kel- Keltner fan? Yeah, yeah. Huge Keltner yeah. fan. What I mean by that, for people that are not drummers, I mean you you look at a drummer on TV and their arms and their wrists are moving around, and to to hit the drums, what I mean by just the wrist player, the arms aren't moving too much, but the hands and the wrists are, are doing all the work pretty much. So how did you develop that and was it a necessity based on um, dynamics, playing low volume stuff like rock quiz or? Yeah, I think, I look, you know, I think it goes back to your jazz training, you know, like, you know, like having, learning the touch, you know, the, having that touch and learning the rebound and all that kind of stuff, making the drums do a bit of the work. And then going out and playing rock and roll for years and trying to actually work out a way so, you know, you know, once you start hitting harder, your, your body takes a bit of a hiding. So you start going, okay, I'm going to just just relax. And, and at a certain point, a drum's not going to go any louder. And, and you can, you know, like all my favourite drummers can play a heavy backbeat with very little effort, you know what I mean? Like it, it's, for me, it's, it's, a, it's more of a whip, like a, like that kind of thing. It's like a one-inch punch, you know. And um, yeah. So I've always sort of had that approach to a backbeat, and then the rest of it's just trying to keep as relaxed as possible. And if I need to get louder, I, I usually just um, make the make the velocity a little bit more, but try not to tense up, kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like um, yeah. Um, it's just it's a sound. Look, I know what I want a drum to sound like. And that's how I get that sound. And I try and do it with the least amount of stress in my body. So I think it yeah. all just comes out from that. And consistency. You, you know, the, the bigger the the bigger the wallop, the the more chance there is of it being not as accurate, you know? Yeah. And I think how tall you, sorry? How how tall are you? Six foot something? Six, six one foot. and a half, yeah. It's nearly six, six foot. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So tall ish. Yeah, tall ish. Yeah, tall tallish. Um you probably look taller 
maybe because everybody you play was really short. Because when, exactly right, yeah. when you're on TV, you look like a monster. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, with with the height and size, you know, you get velocity and torque and stuff like that. Yeah, so. it's also about where you, yeah. how you set up and yeah, you know, and um, you know, this. I mean, I, I'm still searching for the ultimate way to play with the least amount of physical um, difficulty in your body. You know. Yeah, well, that's something Keltner is kind of renowned for, really. You mm. know, even he's he's still playing now, well into his seventies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Gad's the same. Look at Gad. You know, like Gad. exactly, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen that. Um, do you know who Ross Garfield is? He's the yeah, drum yeah, doctor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Have you seen I've that? Seen that? Yeah, I've seen his, his things on. You seen the Keltner thing? Yeah, yeah, it's bloody good, eh? Yeah. Oh. Has there ever been a gig that you've been offered that you couldn't do, um, um, and and that you regret? No, I don't mean. Sorry, I don't mean just um like a one-off sort of gig. But have you ever been sort of offered a project that's kind of clashed with something else you've done, and you've kind of regretted? Not oh, there's a, it up? there's always there's nothing that's there's nothing that's ended up being anything long or ongoing. There might just be the odd gig that came up, and, and I was in the middle of doing something else. But it's yeah. not anything that you go, oh, man, that would have changed my career. <laughs> okay. so, there's a All couple right. of times when I got asked to do things like uh, when I was younger, I was in the States, I got offered a gig with a couple of guitar players that were in L.A. that wanted me to come and play in their band. And I probably would have, might have changed the shape of my career had I stayed there, you know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. you know, but who knows? You, you just, I might have been doing weddings over there, you know, and <laughs> not playing <laughs> any good music, you know. Okay, cool. Cool. Um, you were saying that you were um, also the talent yeah. talent agent searcher for Rockwiz. Have you thought of um, doing more of that kind of stuff with your your day to day life? Yeah, like I, I, I actually get a lot of um, side gigs, putting together bands for specific one off things. That's that's actually oh, right. yeah, that's a way that that's a big you know side income earner where you just get. Oh. You know, to back one thing one night, you'll, everyone learns 13 songs. You know, mm. if they've got the budget to do it, then, yeah, I do quite a bit of that stuff. Um, earlier today I sent you a message to tell me one song and only one song that's had the biggest impact on you. Um, so what we're going to do is I, I, if you can sort of introduce that song and then we'll – I'll hit the play button and we'll have a bit of a listen together and then y- you can tell me, uh, you know, what it is about that song, why you chose that song. Yep. The song is Tin Soldier by The Small Faces. Your fire. You are a 
Alright, so why this song, Pete? Well, um, as a, I think I was nine when I heard this song, nine or ten, I remember hearing Ichiku Park and thinking, wow, this is the most incredible band I've ever heard in my life. And then this song, just the excitement of the way the drums come in at the start of the song and then when that piano breakdown happens in the, after the first chorus and the drums yeah. come back in, it's just, it was like mind blowing. It's like that's what yeah. I want. That's 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 it. This is what I want to do. I want to be in a band like this. Yeah, Kenny Jones, eh? Yeah. yeah. Very cool, yeah. very very cool. So, um, hopefully, we come out of this this uh, COVID thing soon to you know um, an extent where you guys can start playing a little bit more. You you were saying before we hit record that some stuff is starting to yeah yeah to build to, up. Yeah, look, we're hoping that the blocks are starting to all fall into place and we can you know have a have a decent second half of the year. You know. Yeah, so so what have you got? What what sort of started to come back for you? Uh, there's a couple of rock quiz shows. There's some Paul yep. Kelly recording. There's a possibility of a Paul Kelly tour in the middle of the year and a couple of other one-off things, a couple of little sessions here and there. Yeah. So it's enough to just, you know, be out there playing again and feeling like you're a musician. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Paul Kelly stuff that you do in the March. So when you go in to do – um, a Paul Kelly album or EP or whatever it may be. Do you know what songs you have? You played those songs up, or are you going in there with Paul? Paul's got a bunch of new songs. And no, then, we will rehearse. Like, like, we'll rehearse. Oh, you will yeah, rehearse. We'll, yeah, we'll usually rehearse for a week, and, and a lot of the times we'll go in and we'll record whatever he's got, and we don't know until we've done it all whether it's going to be on the same album or not. Sometimes things get shelved for another album later, right. and it's like. It's in. He'll just end up with a bunch of songs that sound like they belong on the one album, and that'll be that album. Yeah, yeah very cool. Mm. Very cool. All right, Peter Luscombe, thanks so much for spending your evening with me, man, having a chat and talking about your life and your your career. And shame we can't be sitting in the same room doing it. But I know, hopefully yeah, we can. Exactly. Hopefully we can do that. You know, when you know when you're next um, up in Sydney. Um, yeah, maybe we can catch up and have a beer or something. And Absolutely. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd yeah. be really cool. Yeah, it's been great. All right, mate. Thanks, Stevie. All right, Pete. Take it easy, man. Thanks very you much. You too, mate. See yeah. ya. Cheers, bud. Bye. See ya.
California.